0: Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Today we're going to be talking about the facts of faith. I have one single point this morning, and that single point is that the ultimate reality is God himself. However... In times of trouble, what may keep a believer troubled, what may keep a believer weary, is their focus on the reality around them. As a result, this morning we're going to find ourselves in Psalm chapter 10, specifically Psalm chapter 10, verses 12 to 18. And what those verses show us, what those verses reveal to us, is how we stay focused on the ultimate reality, God Himself. By pleading the facts of faith. Now, for those of you who listen to my other podcast, Preaching Christ, you know that I've been moving through a series called Preaching Through the Psalms. There, I have already preached through Psalm number 10, verses 1 to 11, but instead of preaching through verses 12 to 18, we're going to walk through it in a Bible teaching lesson here today. So, to reiterate, Our focus is going to be Psalm chapter 10, verses 12 to 18, but let's open our Bibles and read all of Psalm chapter 10. So the text says, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face, he will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. You have seen it. You have beheld mischief and vexation. To take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil doer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king for ever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble, you will strengthen their heart, you will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, so the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. So, beloved, overall, what Psalm number 10 tells us is what makes the wicked wicked. And what Psalm number 10 tells us is that the wicked never stay still. They are always doing wickedness. And what the wicked will invariably do is they will go on offense against the saints of God. And when the wicked go on offense against the saints of God, what do God's people do? They go on defense. And as a result, what the final verses of Psalm number 10 are, what verses 12 to 18 are, is a prayer for God to defend the defenseless. And much of the prayer in verses 12 to 18 is a response to what the wicked are doing in verses number 1 to 11. Now, when we take a broad look at Psalm number 10 overall, there's a constant tension between appearance and reality. There's a tension between the way things seem and the way things really are. And what David shows us is that When he turns to God, when he turns away from what the wicked are doing in the world, when he turns from the earthly to the eternal, then all of his anxiety turns into assurance and all of his confusion turns into confidence. And that happens because in his prayer, David is pleading the facts of faith. Psalm number 10 opens in verse number 1 by David saying, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That is not a cry of doubt, but rather, that is a cry of desolation. That's how David begins the psalm. But in verse number 12, when David is now praying to God, he's actually praying to God with an air of confidence. Verse number 12 says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Here, the psalmist is no longer asking God why, but instead he's expressing full confidence in God. And the question now is, what happened? What happened in between the psalmist posture in between verse number one and verse number 12? And what changed is that the psalmist is no longer focusing on what he's going to do, and the psalmist is no longer focusing on what the wicked are doing and now becoming overwhelmed. What the psalmist is doing beginning in verse number 12 is he is focusing on God. And when the psalmist focuses on God, what becomes readily evident is that the strength to conquer lies with God and God alone. So then as a result, the psalmist begins to pray the facts of faith. Now here's an important point. Today we're gonna be talking about the facts of faith, but to pray the facts of faith that actually presumes you have faith, that actually presumes that you trust God because it would dishonor the Lord to actually believe that he's not there. It would dishonor the Lord to actually believe that he's unable to help you or that in some way, shape, or form, God has forgotten. So when the psalmist prays in verse number 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, do not forget the afflicted. He says, Arise, knowing, believing, and trusting that God is there. When he prays, lift up your hand, it's because he actually believes God has the power. And when he says, O Lord, do not forget, it is because he knows that God always remembers his own. So when this prayer begins and the psalmist says, arise, he's not waking God up because the Lord that we serve is not one who sleeps or slumbers. When the psalmist prays, arise, he's actually waking himself up and he's actually now whisking his theological imagination into shape to awaken him to the reality that God was always there to begin with And now he's arising, he's illuminating the faith inside his own heart. Because the God of the Bible never stops being God. So yes, the wicked will act wickedly, but they are not the ones who have the final say. Because the strength to conquer lies with God alone. So now in verse number 3, the psalmist says, For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. Then in verse 13, what does he pray? He prays, Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, You will not require it. The only way a wicked person can look up to heaven and actually say that God will not require it is if God, in fact, has backed up. Is if in fact God has now given the wicked person space and let the wicked person be as wicked as they desire. So, on the one hand, in Psalm number 10, verse 3, while the psalmist is looking out of the world and he's asking himself, how can the wicked person boast of all the wickedness they want to do, and how could God allow this to happen? In reality, when the psalmist now keeps his eyes on God in verse number 13, what becomes readily evident is that one of the most dangerous things that God can actually do is to leave someone alone is to actually give a wicked person the space to commit abominable acts of evil, and now that person is without God's protective care, is without God's correction, is without God's disruptions, and without God's whispers. So as a result, what we see is that God allowing a wicked person to do wickedness in and of itself is not a reason to be distressed because that withdrawal in and of itself is a form of divine judgment. Because one of the most dangerous things God can ever do in life is to leave you alone. And when he does that, now a man will reap the consequences of his own sin. When we make connection now to the New Testament, what happened in Luke chapter four? In Luke chapter four, Jesus was in his hometown. He was preaching and teaching on the Sabbath in a synagogue in Nazareth in his hometown. The short version of the story is that the people rejected Jesus and they literally kicked him out of town and tried to kill him. What now happened is Jesus, recognizing their unbelief, left Nazareth and then went down to Capernaum. Now the people were happy when Jesus was gone, when God was out of their midst. But although they were now delightful, although the disruptor was now outside of their immediate environment, they now had to deal with the reality less God and what the New Testament tells us is that the that once the light left Nazareth he never went back so one of the most dangerous things God can do is to leave you alone so when we now look at out the world and see all the wicked boasting in their heart's desire, and they seem to be free to do evil, that is not a reason for despair. That is, in fact, in some cases, a form of divine judgment. For while the wicked may say that God will not judge them, what God's word says is that your sin will find you out. Numbers 32:23. In verse numbers 8 to 11, the psalmist says, He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. You will never see it. Now, here's what the psalmist prays in verse number 14. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation, to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Now, the unfortunate in verse number 14 essentially refers to the spiritually poor or those who cleave to no merit of their own. And orphans do not literally mean orphans. It simply means people who have been abandoned here on earth, but they are never abandoned by their Heavenly Father. So here now is this morning's first point. When we find ourselves in the midst of wickedness, we have to plead the facts of faith. And here is fact of faith number one, that God sees, God knows, and God acts. God sees, God knows, and God acts. In verse number 14, the psalmist says, you have seen it, meaning God sees. God even sees your inward grief about the outward trouble all around you. In verse 14, the psalmist says, you have beheld mischief and vexation. In other words, God knows. God is acutely aware of everything that's going on in the environment around you. And the psalmist says in verse 14, you have been the helper of the orphan. In other words, God acts. God does. And what the history of the drama of redemption and what the history of God's people in the canon of Scripture and in the legacy of the church tells us is, is that God is the defender of those individuals who cannot defend themselves. And God is the friend of the man who is spiritually poor. poor. He is the friend of the man who has no merit of his own, and therefore he simply trusts God. Beloved, let us remember the context of verse number 14. The psalmist who prays, Psalm number 10, verse 14, is experiencing evil is experiencing injustice, is experiencing wickedness all around him. But the Bible also tells us that God is a God who is long-suffering. God is a God who is patient. And it's God's patience that explains his seeming delay in justice. But instead of looking at the world around us and asking ourselves, God, why don't you enact your justice, we have to realize That if God is that patient, if God demonstrates such a degree of long-suffering with those who reject Him, then how much more patient, then how much more long-suffering will He demonstrate to those who trust Him? As a result, whenever we find ourselves in the midst of wickedness, we never deny our reality, but with eyes wide open, we embrace everything going on around us but also realize there's a gap between the way things seem and the facts of faith. So if God may seem to be far away, we actually know that God sees. When it seems as if God is not paying us any mind, we know that God knows. And when it seems as if God isn't doing anything, we know that God acts. Because fact of faith, number one, is that God sees, God knows, God acts. So when we plead in prayer, the facts of faith... We actually plead the facts of faith. We do not plead the lies of unbelief. Because realize this, church. Again, Psalm number 10 talks about wicked people who are acting wickedly. But realize the agent, the force that is behind the wicked people, the wicked person doing wickedness is the kingdom of darkness, is the devil himself. And the devil's MO. His intent in nudging men to be wicked here on earth is to actually drive godly people away from God, is to actually drive them out of their prayer closets so they won't plead the facts of faith and actually believe that what they see around them is the ultimate testimony to what's really real. But the faithful of God know otherwise and they plead the facts of faith. Because consider this alternative as well. Now that we know that God sees, God knows, and God acts, I want the church to embrace the reality that God takes notice of our troubles even when he seems for a time to take no notice. Because God may simply want us to grow up. God may simply want us to... To mature. If you are an individual who's been in daddy's house for a while and you begin to take daddy for granted, and you begin to take all of the privileges, all of the resources, all of the benefits for granted, do you know what'll actually make you appreciate daddy and daddy's house all the more? Being separated from or there being a temporary distance from daddy and in Daddy's house, when it seems as if Daddy and all the comforts of his residence are now far, far away. So at the beginning of Psalm number 10, when the psalmist says, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The church should consider that God may, from time to time, allow us to experience a felt separation from Him, Not so that we actually lose something, not so that we are in a deficiency, but rather we lose a phony walk with him in order to gain something more real. Let me say that again. It's a possibility, Church, that from time to time, God may allow us to experience a felt separation from Him in order that we don't lose anything, in order that we're not in a deficiency at all, but rather we lose a fake and phony relationship with our Heavenly Father in order to gain something real, in order to gain something with substance. Listen, there are many times in our Christian lives where we may go about day-to-day affairs and things may look very religious, things may look very spiritual on the outside, but on the inside, nothing is real. Nothing is actually built on anything of substance then what happens? Then we suffer an injustice. Then we have a break in a core relationship. Then we have some type of schism at church. And then what happens? Then everything falls apart. Then we feel as if God is far, far away and that God is not paying us any mind. But in situations like that, we have to ask ourselves a question. If we truly and earnestly trusted God so much... And if our relationship with God was so deep and so substantive, then why would something so small, why would something so common, why would something so ordinary unsettle us, disrupt us, and disturb us so much? God may purposefully allow you to experience a felt separation from Him to wreck whatever semblance of relationship you had before, and now by allowing you to experience a transient period of desolation, that now is gonna change your focus of attention. There's now a new desire in your heart that's now awakened. There's now a new desire in your heart that's genuine and real and doesn't desire anything around you. It desires God and God alone. And that now is gonna grow and cultivate something real. That is what's gonna augment your faith That is now going to gift you with a real spiritual peace, a real spiritual contentment, and a real spiritual joy that can only be discovered in the fires of adversity, in the furnace of trials. And as a result now, after that felt experience is done, you now have a strengthened heart and a more genuine, real relationship with God built upon genuine biblical faith. So that now, regardless of what happens subsequently thereafter, you can go into your prayer closet and, pr- and plead the facts of faith, knowing that God sees knowing that God knows and knowing that God acts. In verse number 15, the psalmist says, Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The reality is the wicked may not seek God, but we can pray for God to seek them out. And when God finds them, it's an unfair fight because what our text tells us is that the hand of the Lord breaks the arm of the wicked because the strength to conquer rests in God and God alone. In verse number four, the psalmist says, the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him, does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. The psalmist then in verse number 16 prays, the Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. While the wicked may claim that there is no God, the truth is that there is in fact a God and He is not a pushover. He is a King that reigns forever and ever. In fact, the Lord who is our King, He even rules over forever. So here now is fact of faith number two. When you find yourself in the midst of trouble, you have to plead the facts of faith And here is fact of faith number two. There is a God who is king and time works for him. There is a God who is king and time works for him. Beloved, look, times of trouble can be troublesome, oftentimes because of how long we're in the time of trouble. Because it seems like day after day and season after season, the wicked are going unnoticed as verses number 8 to 11 tell us. And the longer things are allowed to happen that are unfavorable, the longer the trouble it draws out, the more and more people are nudged to say, God has forgotten. But what verse number 16 tells us is that God is king forever and ever. God is the one who made time, and time works for Him. So how foolish would we have to be to ever shut God up in the narrow limits of time? Why would we ever put God in the confines of time, knowing that He is above time, knowing that He is timeless, knowing that He is eternal, and knowing when His timing is right, what He decrees will come to pass. I say all that to say, a long delay from our perspective can never hinder, can never frustrate God from extending forth his mighty hand of power when he can immediately and instantaneously help the helpless and defend those who cannot defend themselves. The point, beloved, is this that time works for God and we can never constrain, we can never gauge, we can never evaluate a timeless God in our narrow constraints of time. Now the end of verse number 16 says, nations have perished from his land. When the Psalmist writes this, he's not literally talking about foreign nations who are occupying space in the promised land. He's talking about, going back to what the psalmist says in verse number 3, he's talking about people who are not of Israel. He's talking about people who may literally be in the land, who are not God's people. So when we now make a connection to the New Testament, it's talking about people who are physically in God's church, but are not actually members of the people of God. So when verse number 16 says, nations have perished from his land, the psalmist is actually talking about God purifying his church. For just as God can remove those who are idolaters from his literal land, he can purge those who are unbelieving Israelites from his church. Because if God is king forever and ever, what the Old Testament tells us, is that the king is the one who is responsible for administering justice and restraining evil. Therefore, we put our trust in God to be the one to remove those who are not actually his out from his church. So the question now is, do you actually believe that God is king? Do you actually believe that the Lord reigns? Forever and ever. Because if you do, as Matthew chapter 13 verses 24 to 30 tells us, God is the one who will purify his church. God is the one who will cleanse his land. So all those who are gods will stand and all those who are not. All the tares that actually do not originate from his seed, he will be the one who ultimately deals with. With them. So even in the midst of wickedness that's polluting and infecting the church, even in the midst of wickedness that's being committed by people who once had a profession of faith and now they have renounced God and turned away from Him, what Psalm number 10, verse 16, tells us is that God will be the one who finally and ultimately deals with them. In verses number 5 to 7, the psalmist says, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. In other words, what verses number five to seven tell us is the wicked person says to himself, I can keep on doing evil because I am safe, and the people I am hurting, no one minds, no one cares about. Here's the psalmist prayer response in verse number 17. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that the man who is of earth will no longer cause terror. Here is fact of faith number three. Fact of faith number three is, the God of heaven strengthens our hearts so that earthly troubles are no longer troublesome. The God of heaven strengthens our hearts so that earthly troubles are no longer troublesome. When we find ourselves in the midst of wickedness, in times of trouble, in the midst of adversity, God is going to provide for us a means of escape. But that means of escape, that exit door, isn't actually a way out of the adversity. The means of escape that God provides is now a capacity to endure, is now the ability to remain under whatever trials exist so that now, Our heart is strengthened, so in the midst of a time of trouble, the earthly troubles are no longer troublesome. Because at the end of the day, church, God sees, God hears, and what God now also does is he strengthens our hearts to endure whatever trial that he permits. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And God allows us to remain and sit under that trial so that in his time, he will eventually carry out his justice. But I want to draw your attention to something very critical in verse number 17. The psalmist says, O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. What this verse tells us, church, is that God hears not just our words. What God actually hears are the desires of our hearts. This tells us that your heart may have made a prayer to God. Your heart may have expressed a genuine, godly desire a long, long time ago, and God is faithful not to answer what you say with your mouth. God is faithful to answer the silent words of your heart. This tells us that true, genuine prayer has less to do with what we actually say with our mouth. True prayer has the most to do with the desires of our heart. It's not in what we express or what we don't express. It's in the genuine yearnings of our hearts. So using now the logic of Psalm number 10 verse 17, we can now praise God for mercies we are going to receive. We can now praise God for heart strengthenings He's going to do. Because when you find yourself in the midst of adversity and your heart genuinely and earnestly expresses a godly desire, even if you never communicate that desire in prayer, God will hear that desire and God will answer it. And God will answer it as verse number 17 tells us, by strengthening our hearts. God therefore hears what we can't. We can't hear the desires of our heart but God can. And when God hears what we can't, He then acts and answers our prayers. This tells us that prayer is not only profitable, this gives us a resilient sense of confidence, this gives us a resilient sense of hope, and this gives us the strength we now need to plead the facts of faith and prayer, knowing that God hears the desires of our heart that never make it to our lips to express in our prayer closets. But let us not forget, what does verse number 17 say? It says, O Lord, you have heard the desire of whom? It says, you have heard the desire of the humble. So God does not hear desires in general. He hears the desires of the humble. And biblically defined, a humble person is someone who is sincere and someone who simply lives in submissiveness to God. You'll know you'll find a humble person because a humble person will never say they are humble. A humble person will only lament over how prideful they are, and the humble person will be weary because they think their desires are not the right desires because the only desires they want. Want to have are God's desires. Now, since God hears the desires of the humble heart, this tells us something. This tells us that if your posture in prayer is not humble, or if your heart is not in the prayer, then God won't hear you. What this text tells us is that if there's little desire, if there's little heart, then essentially what we're asking God to do is not to answer our prayer requests. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, he that prays with little desire asks God to refuse him. Whenever Christians get into their prayer closets and have a prayer request that they make over and over and over again, it is always far easier to say that God refusing to answer is his will than to actually work out why God is not answering our prayer requests. And one reason why our prayer requests are being, de- are being denied is because we don't have the right heart desire. Because verse number 17 tells us that God will strengthen our hearts— when our humble heart expresses desires. This gives us a reason to praise God. It gives us a reason to praise God, knowing that He prepares our hearts, and also knowing that each and every day of our Christian walk, our hearts need preparation. And our hearts need preparation because we can't prepare our own hearts. We are unable, through natural means, to grow and cultivate a spiritual heart. And that is difficult work. It is work that is so difficult, the only person who has the ability to do it is God Himself. So we thank God for His grace and mercy, that He prepares our hearts and we also thank God that He will strengthen our hearts to pray as the text therein says, you will incline your ear because only God will prepare and strengthen our hearts to pray to Him. And that's an important point not to miss because only God strengthens our hearts to pray. There are many other forces and entities in this world that want to do the opposite. They want to actually weaken our hearts, to turn away from prayer, to turn away from the Word, to turn away from church, to turn away from wise counsel. The devil our fleshly carnal nature, the secular ideology of the world, and the kingdom of darkness, none of those things want to strengthen our hearts. All of those things want to weaken our hearts so that we won't plead the facts of faith. But only God will strengthen the spiritual heart of one of his children to not only walk in a path of faith, obedience, but to also live a life filled with joy, contentment, and satisfaction. Only God is the one who can strengthen our hearts to pick up and bear our cross each and every day. Only God is the one who will strengthen our hearts to engage in Christian service and not to become weary when we serve all those individuals around us in the church and the world at large. And only God is the one who has the ability to strengthen our hearts so that even in the midst of times of trouble, we don't use that situation as fuel to turn away from God, but rather we use that adversity and turmoil to be another reason to simply glorify and praise God, knowing that he strengthened our hearts to remain under that trial. Church, I don't know how you feel about underlining or making marks in your Bible, but Psalm number 10, verse 17, in my opinion, is a promise that every Christian ought to treasure and to literally plead in prayer where we say, Lord, you have promised to hear the desire of the humble and that you will strengthen my heart. You will incline your ear. Knowing that that is not only a prayer, it's a promise. That when we genuinely and earnestly have a sincere godly desire in our hearts, God will hear it and God will answer it. But how will God answer it specifically? He will answer it specifically by strengthening our hearts, not necessarily by changing the situation or the people around us. God will answer our heart desire by strengthening us first. Because consider something, church. When we pray for things, when we pray for stuff, when we pray for blessings, it's actually very easy for God to grant that prayer request. It's actually very easy for God to change things or stuff around you. But what's actually harder is for you to change to be able now to receive that blessing. What's actually harder is for you to change to actually have the character to be able to responsibly deal with and bear whatever blessings God bestows upon you. So when we now not only plead the promise of Psalm number 10, verse 17 in prayer, we plead that promise knowing God will faithfully respond to our heart's desires by changing our hearts first. This then not only changes a promise that we plead in prayer, it also changes how we view prayer in general. That prayer is not transactional, where we pray to God to get stuff. Prayer is transformational. And the primary person that God transforms first is me, is you. And what he transforms is our heart by strengthening it, to make it more godly, to make us, to make you, to make me more like the man and the woman he has called us to be. For what this text says is that although God will strengthen our hearts for prayer, that he will incline his ear, he doesn't just strengthen our hearts for prayer, he strengthens our hearts in general to live the Christian life and to walk with greater service and obedience to him. So the summary of all that is that God hears, but he does not necessarily answer with words or a change in situation, he hears and then has promised to strengthen our hearts. Because even if we got a direct verbal answer, the question now is, do we have the heart strength to live that answer? Do we have the character to obey that truth? So the final part of verse 17 says, you will incline your ear, meaning That God does not strengthen our hearts for nothing, rather he strengthens our hearts to call on him. Meaning with greater heart strength, we are not more independent, but more dependent on God. We are not more independent because if we were more independent, we would fail more. Meaning we're trying to live life independent of reality's author, God himself. And the more dependent we are on God, that means not more failure, but more triumph. Because God is now working for us instead of working against us. So verses 17 to 18 say, You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. So the value system of Psalm number 10 tells us that the groups that God saves, the orphan and the oppressed, are the exact groups that the wicked persecute. And what verse number 18 tells us is that the person who is of the earth is not God because they are the person of the earth. And therefore, the person of the earth poses no ultimate threat. The reason why is simple because a fact of faith number 3, because the God of heaven will strengthen our hearts. And if the God of heaven strengthens our hearts, then the trouble of the man of earth will no longer be troublesome. The Bible uses the phrase of the earth over and over again, and it's frequently used in the book of Revelation. For example, Revelation 3.10, 6.10, and 12.12. 12. And the phrase of the earth not only describes where these individuals are from, it also describes what they live for. And as we've already mentioned, if a man of the earth lives for the earth, the earth will eventually pass away, but the God of heaven reigns forever and ever. So the tension now at the end of Psalm number 10 is that yes, the wicked will oppress and unjustly persecute, but God will ultimately take vengeance on all his enemies. In the meantime, The resolve of Psalm number 10 is this, that the man of the earth will not trouble our hearts because the God of heaven has strengthened it. When we therefore pray these verses, when we therefore sing Psalm number 10, verses 12 to 18, we must do so committing a just and righteous cause to God. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, the man of earth may cause harm and may strike other people here in the natural earthly realm. But what the God of heaven has promised to do is to assist his children from heaven above. Now in closing, what I'll say is this. Psalm number 10 opens by the psalmist asking, Why God, why? He says, Why, O Lord, are you far away? And as we mentioned, this is not a cry of disbelief. It's a cry of desolation. And although the righteous may feel desolate from time to time, they are never without God. And so, when we pray the facts of faith, we pray knowing and trusting that God will ultimately have His own way in His own time. What this now does is it liberates children of God. It liberates us in the height of wickedness and oppression to let go of unforgiveness to let go of bitterness, anger, and the carnal desire for vengeance or to get even. This, in fact, is the only way to deal with oppression because at the end of the day, the Bible is clear. There will never be an end to unjust oppression until the end because from now until the second coming of Christ, the number of the wicked oppressing is always going to outnumber the number of righteous relying on God. The number of wicked oppressing will always outnumber the number of the faithful pleading the facts of faith. So when we plead the facts of faith, let us do so, remembering that God has ordained all things for a reason and that God is still sovereign and provident in suffering. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. So the way in which we endure persecution, the way in which we endure wickedness, is that we stay focused on God. We don't stay focused on the shakable things of earth. We stay focused on the unshakable things above. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Because at the end of the day, church, when a man has his heart opened to savor and see God for who he really is, He will now have peace and contentment regardless of the circumstances. For as Habakkuk 2.4 says, but the righteous man will live by his faith. Therefore, by simple faith, regardless of appearances, what the psalmist in Psalm number 10 expects God to do is to do something. That means looking away from what we see around us as the ultimate reality and simply looking to God and asking Him to act, knowing that He will act on me, knowing that He will act on you first by giving us heart strength. The final thing that I'll say is this. Psalm number 10 talks about the wicked oppressing God's people, but the greatest injustice, the greatest wickedness ever committed is what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross is when God's own people chose to set free a terrorist and a murderer, Barabbas, and condemned the innocent, sinless man to death, Jesus Christ. It was the height of wickedness to sentence to death the man who had no just reason to die. But when we look to the cross, we see that God was still sovereign, that God was still provident, all along, and that God actually used the wickedness of men to usher in the greatest triumph for his bride, to usher in the greatest triumph for his people. So, with the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross, that would now be the atonement, that would now be the ransom price that God would now use to finally and fully pay the penalty for God's elect once and forevermore, and to set all God's people free so that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus endured the full wrath of God for the elect at Calvary. So now using Psalm number 10 as a launching pad, looking forward to the cross, we can now look back at both Calvary and Psalm number 10 and see that the Lord is king forever and ever and that the cross served as the just means for God to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that now all those who are in Christ Jesus are now adopted sons and daughters into the family of God and we will never be orphaned because our Father is heavenly who reigns forever and ever. And we will never be oppressed because Jesus Christ set us free to live for him.